Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to another episode of The Full Ratchet. Today, we're talking with Rob Goh about the five main elements of VC portfolio strategy, types of VC funds, non-traditional portfolio strategies, and how the portfolio approach has evolved over time. Here's the interview on VC portfolio strategy. Today, Rob Goh joins us from Boston, Massachusetts. Rob is a co-founder of NextView Ventures, a seed investment fund focused on internet-enabled innovation. And he also writes great content over at the NextView blog. Rob, welcome to the program. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. So can you start us off by telling us your story about how you got involved in venture investing? Yeah, sure. So um, I started my career on the um, operational side in product. Uh, I was at product in uh, eBay 10 plus years ago, in product marketing actually, before heading over to the East Coast for business school. While I was in business school, I did some work for some startups in the area and had intended to either start a company or join a startup but in the process, met a number of venture investors who had interest in bringing on somebody who had a uh, consumer internet experience for a, a large-scale Silicon Valley company in Boston. So I interviewed with a few groups and ultimately joined Spark Capital um, back in 2007, just as they were starting to invest their second fund. So it was a terrific time uh, learning the business at Spark. They've obviously gone on to do extraordinarily well, and I was able to see the early investments in some terrific companies like Twitter, Tumblr, and AdMeld and so forth, but also see a, a very experienced firm go through um, the ups and downs of the, mostly downs, I guess, of the <laughs> financial crisis um, and, and subsequent recovery. So it was a great learning experience there. Um, and then parlayed that into starting NextView with my two colleagues, David and Lee, um, who also had a similar path as being entrepreneurs and operators at high-growth internet companies, before joining more traditional venture capital firms. And we just all saw a pretty common gap in the market around early stage investing, where the cost of starting software businesses had come way, way down. But um, ironically, in the wake of the financial crisis, the best venture capital funds were actually getting bigger as there was a flight to quality among the LP side. Um, and so there was this natural disconnect in the market that was most acute in, uh, in Boston and in the East Coast. And so we saw a natural opportunity to start a very focused, seed-oriented uh, venture capital fund here, and uh, and that's what we did. And so we started the firm in about 2010, 2011 timeframe, and we've raised a couple of funds now and have been uh, you know employing that strategy since then. So was there a specific focus when you were at Spark 
as far as sectors or geography? Yeah, so um, you know, Spark as a firm is a uh, multi-geography, multi-stage firm. They look broadly within the full value chain of uh, tech and the internet. So everything from application layer stuff to hardware and, and next generation uh, infrastructure. My focus tended to be more on the uh, application side of things and less so on the hardware side. But I was uh, pretty broadly focused geographically and uh, in terms of specific subsectors. So you mentioned that you were at eBay, I think you said 10 years ago. What a time to be there during a major growth phase. What were some of the key things that you were working on there? Yeah, so um, I was the business product lead for um, what we called Finding, which was the uh, features and functionality around helping buyers find items and products on the site. It was an interesting time to be there, as you said, because the company in many ways was going through an interesting transition when I got there where the balance in the marketplace had started to tip away from there being sort of an excess of demand and insufficient supply to a a situation where there was excess uh, supply and not enough demand. And so, you know, as a company, we didn't have that many levers to improve the demand side of the equation. You could either you know, acquire more users at the top of the funnel, or you can make the users you you got to the site more efficient through the finding flow. And so it was a remarkable time to be there because, you know, we were able to push through a lot of features and functionality that significantly enhanced um, what at the time was a pretty rudimentary and pretty broken buyer, you know, product discovery process. So that was uh, that was some of the interesting things that were happening then. Apart from my own area, we were also uh, completing the uh, integration with PayPal at the time. And so that was a strategically important time for the company uh, from that standpoint as well. And obviously now they've, they've, uh, the two companies have separated, which is probably the strategically correct thing at this point for, uh, for the PayPal business. I'd imagine that your portfolio companies appreciate that advisor perspective. But all right, so the topic today is VC portfolio strategy. Rob, mm-hmm. you think of five main parameters that VCs consider with regards to portfolio strategy. Can you walk us through each of these? Sure. And these five are not independent. They tend to tie together uh, in a pretty tightly tight way. So, you know, the first I would say is number of investments. And so yep. th- you can think of this in two ways, both the number of investments for the fund as a whole, as well as the number of investments on a per investor basis, which, which tie together. The second is the ownership percentage that you're targeting as a firm in those companies. So essentially, it's a measure of how meaningful every one of those investments are if they are successful. The third is the, I'd say, the the concentration and the staging of capital. So how much of your fund's capital goes into any one company and at what point in the life of the company does that capital go in? So there are some firms, for example that put in a relatively small amount of money at the seed stage, but then at the A and the B stage, you know, they really uh, heavy down. And, you know, so if you look at the percentage of their capital going into the companies, the vast majority of the capital is in the A and B stage or, or later, but not so much in the early stages. Yep. So that's the concentration of staging. The fourth is capacity. And I, I think of this as sort of the human capacity of the, uh, of the firm, right? So, if you're making 10 investments per year per partner, 
that's very little capacity per company for an individual partner. If you're making one investment or two investments per year per partner, that's a large amount of capacity. And so the partner can allocate their time based on that. And then the fifth is a catch-all, which I just call exceptions, right? Because every firm has a broad strategy, but every strategy has exceptions and rules are broken all the time. And so, you know, I think there's both a question of like, what is the tolerance for exceptions within a a firm's portfolio strategy? And uh, what are the conditions under which uh, an exception is allowed to occur? So I wanted to circle back on number one. We had five total. First was number of investments. Second was ownership percentage. Third was concentration and staging of capital. Fourth was capacity. And five was exceptions. On that first one, you mentioned that the number of investments can vary by fund, and then you also mentioned per investor. I Mm -hmm. didn't quite get that second part. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so the second part actually ties to the capacity issue. So the simplest example is a a one-partner firm, right? If the one-partner firm is investing in two companies per year, which is what a typical lifecycle VC does, and invests over three years, that's six companies in the entire portfolio, and that's probably not enough diversification for it to work, right? So you kind of have to think about both levers at the same time. On the flip side, right, if you have a firm with, call it, six partners, and you have a model where each partner does five investments a year, six times five is 30 investments a year across three years is 90 investments, is that too big of a portfolio or not? Unclear, right? So I think that... uh, the two are related, but they're they're both somewhat different considerations. And then on that second point, ownership percentage. So is that related to a specific strategy a VC firm may have about how much equity of a target startup they need to own in order to make a placement? Yes, it is. So, and, and a lot of these are around thresholds. So there's some level of ownership where a VC says it's just not worth our time or our capital to invest in this company because it's not meaningful enough to us. But then the question is, like, what does meaningful enough really mean? For whatever reason, the historical threshold for most of the, the venture industry has been in the 20 to 25 percent ownership threshold. And so that's sort of been the historical target. With seed funds, often the ownership is quite a bit lower, but different funds, again, employ different strategies. In our case, we usually look to own roughly 7 to 10% of the companies that we invest in. Other funds own less. Some funds may target owning more. The way to think about this is that your ownership target as a fund is directly related to your fund size, right? So I like to say, let's think about a particular outcome, right? So say a $300 million exit for a company. If you're a $40 million fund and you own 10% of the companies, that $300 million exit returns $30 million bucks, which is 75% of the capital of the fund. That's pretty good. If you're a $300 million fund and you're targeting 20% ownership, that $300 million exit returns $60 million out of your $300 million fund. That's not as good, right? While a big fund may own more, the ability for an exit to impact their portfolio might be much less if that fund is much, much larger. So what, what I find is curious, actually, is that For the larger venture capital funds, you don't see a relationship where the larger the fund gets, the bigger the ownership needs to be, even though it kind of intuitively should be the case because if you're a billion-dollar fund and you're owning 20% of those companies, a billion-dollar exit is only returning 20% of your fund, whereas if you have a much smaller fund and you still have the 20% ownership, it moves the needle much uh, much more significantly. So it's an interesting 
dynamic there. I just think that the market doesn't tend to bear more than 20 to 25% ownership for a venture capital fund unless they participate in a financing that is where there wasn't as much competition or the firm was just able to write a huge check and, and uh, maybe give liquidity to founders or something like that. So you go on to cite the single best strategy that a VC firm can employ, sort of from a theoretical standpoint. Right. What, what is that and why is it not the strategy used by most VCs? Right. So it, I don't think this is a particular to VC. I think it's particular to any sort of investment where the single best strategy that you can employ is to invest in only one company and to invest in the company that has the biggest outcome and invest as early as possible at the lowest valuation, right? So if you could invest $100 million into Facebook's very first round, that is better than any portfolio strategy or any other investment you could possibly <laughs> make, right? And I would say, I, I mean, I'm sure it escapes me now, but you know, Warren Buffett, I think, has talked about this where having concentrated positions is infinitely better than diversification if you actually believe that you employ good selection and that your investment actually makes a difference. So obviously, there's way more risk in the market to be able to invest in just one company. And so investors need to build broader portfolios. My argument is that the larger the portfolio one builds, the more one essentially admits that there's luck and chance involved in what they're doing. And, you know, the reason why you're, you're investing in a company N plus one is because you think that what you give up in terms of the size of your position in your first N companies is made up for by the fact that you get the benefit of having one more shot on goal. And again, different funds have different perspectives on how many investments to make, how large the portfolios are to build. But that's sort of like, it, it's been a guiding principle for me ever since, you know, I heard this concept of, you know, the single company portfolio, which is that, yeah, you know, if, uh, if we're investing in tons and tons of companies, that's essentially saying that we can't outfox the <laughs> the impact of uh, luck and chance. And so we need to build diversification. But with diversification potentially comes dilution in terms of the impact of any one company. Yeah, we recently had Jerry Newman on the show and he was talking about how uh, essentially you can't pick. You can't pick these unicorns. You know, Eileen mm-hmm. Lee's article illustrated that of venture back companies, I think it was 0.07% end up being unicorns. Um, Mm -hmm. But maybe we can touch on that a bit later. So along those five dimensions of VC portfolio strategy that we discussed before, how is your fund structured and why? Right. So um, so I'll I'll go through each. So number of investments, our fund focuses on making uh, about 30 investments per fund. On a per partner basis, that equates to two to four investments per year per partner. Our target ownership, as I mentioned, is in the uh, 7 to 10% range. Our concentration and staging of capital is uh, fairly front-loaded, where the uh, roughly uh, a third of our capital will go in at the seed rounds of these companies, and the reserve capital is, to, uh, is there to maintain our ownership in the companies that uh, are performing well over time. Capacity-wise, we look to be very highly engaged in the companies we invest in, and that's Part of our mantra is that we are one of the most highly focused investors at the seed stage where we lead most of our rounds and we will often take board seats. So the two to four investments per year per partner allows us to do that. The way we manage capacity longer term is that we tend to stay on the boards of these companies through the seed round, but come off during the Series A round. So at any one time, we may be on five to eight boards 
but there is a, a, a natural flow to that uh, activity where we're either coming off of boards, where companies are progressing beyond our stage, or there's natural attrition in the portfolio. And uh, in terms of exceptions, we've actually had extraordinarily few exceptions. And again, I think that comes down to our strategy as a firm, where we, we look to be one of the high, most uh, deeply focused funds in the market. We think about this concept of the one company portfolio all the time. And so when there's an exception, usually the temptation is to say, well, why don't we throw 100K into this one company, which is a flyer, or invest at this company that's at a ridiculously high valuation, and so we can never get the ownership we want. And usually the reason why we don't end up making those exceptions is because we believe that every investment we make needs to be dramatically meaningful to the fund and have something about the investment that would make it the theoretical like one investment that returns all of our capital and then, and then some. And if our dollar amount's too small or the valuation's too high, there's just essentially no possible way that that could, that could realistically happen. And so we make very few exceptions. So is there one fund that handles both the seed investments as well as the follow-ons? Uh, yeah, so uh, it's all one fund pretty standard, right? Like most venture funds have capital that they invest in the initial rounds of financing and the companies they, they invest in. And there's also reserves allocated towards those companies down the road. Yeah, it seems like depending on who I'm talking to, it's structured one of two ways, either sort of the way that you've got it, or uh, for instance, Charlie O'Donnell was talking about how he has raised a seed fund mm-hmm. um, and will deploy that on the seed investments, but then raise a subsequent growth fund, which he uses for following on on the winners. So yeah, I, I, actually one, uh, uh, one comment on that, I would say you have seen a wave recently of opportunity funds that have come about. Those yep, tend yep. to be designed for much later stage investing, right? So Foundry, for example, has an opportunity fund. Their core fund does do quite a bit of their follow on investing out of their main fund. But the opportunity fund is for the minority of opportunities within their portfolio that raise uh, a very, very large later stage rounds, which they think is still an attractive buying opportunity. And so the opportunity fund is focused on that. So I would say the vast majority of funds have reserve capital as part of their core strategy. And, you know, the opportunity funds are sort of even on top of even that. As you watch the portfolio of companies evolve through the fundraising stages and their life cycle, what is your expectation of companies that will succeed versus fail? Yeah, so um, you know the the rough math that we expect is that you know if we invest in thirty companies, ten of the thirty will essentially fail out of the gates, so they won't get to a subsequent round of financing, nor will they be acquired profitably after the first year, year and a half. Yep. And so far, our numbers have tracked pretty well with that. Something like 70% of our seeds end up raising VC-led Series A's. And so we're a little bit ahead of that number, but that's roughly what we model. That's great. Um, of the remaining 20 companies, another 10 will lose money down the road. It just won't happen as quickly. And that leaves 10 companies that make money for the fund. The reality, though, is that, call it one to four companies, will probably drive the vast majority of the returns. And so the success of this fund is driven by how many of those we have and how big those, uh, those outlier investments end up being. The good news, as I think I mentioned earlier, given that our ownership relative to our fund size is pretty favorable, is that the definition of a, a big fund returner for us is much, much more manageable than for a much larger fund. So for it to be a needle mover, it doesn't need to be as big. But if there is a huge needle mover, it really, really moves the needle and the potential for a, 
really big multiple on the fund is there. You know, I'm curious. Uh, I've talked to a range of people about capital calls and how some smaller funds will call all the capital up front. Others will establish certain tranches at fixed time periods in which they call, and even others will just call as it's needed. Mm-hmm. How do you guys handle the uh, the capital calling process after an LP has committed a certain amount? Yeah, so um, our fund is structured as a, as a typical institutional venture fund. So the LPs as a whole in, uh, commit to a certain amount, and that happens on a every for us every three-year basis for the most part. Essentially, what we tell our LP is that we're going to call capital on a quarterly or three times a year basis. It's not a set schedule because it tends to be based on the visibility that we see in the portfolio around new investments, follow-ons, and so forth. But it ends up being reasonably consistent, right? Like it's not it's not like we're doing one huge capital call and then nothing throughout the course of the year. It's, it's relatively consistent over the active investment period. We work with SVP that provides a line of credit as well that is there just to smooth out the capital call pacing so that if we misestimate our timing a little bit, our LPs don't feel like they're getting many capital calls all, all on top of one another unexpectedly. Earlier, I mentioned the interview with Jerry Newman where he advocated a non-unicorn picking strategy of sector-focused investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on specializing with a sector focus? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's an interesting strategy. I would say there are two things I'd be thinking about if I was uh, highly sector-focused. The first is that sectors come and go pretty quickly. And so to some degree, if you have a high degree of conviction around a certain sector and you're right, it's great. But usually that same sector isn't producing great, great companies year after year for a long, long time. So I would think about how do you evolve that sector focus as different sectors arise and become more or less interesting. Yep. Uh, the second thing I would think about is how broadly or how narrowly do you define those sectors, right? Because the fun example nowadays is big data. Every internet company or mo- many internet companies have a big data element. So it's not that meaningful. But the flip side is if you're big data focused, then it's very good at uh, positioning yourself relative to other investors. Um, it's very good in terms of helping you develop more nuanced subtheses in certain areas. And so it's not a bad strategy, even though it's very broad. So on the flip side, if you say, hey, you know, we're a fund that's completely focused on blockchain the blockchain protocol, then that is probably prohibitively narrow. And, yep. you know, you may get lucky, but you know, at some point, there's just not that many extraordinary companies that, uh, that you could build a great portfolio around that. So I think if you look at the broad arc of venture, funds that have some focus, but not too much focus tend to do the best, right? Like Sequoia is not, a, is not that sector focused as a fund, although different partners at different points in time focus in certain areas and go very deep and make investments and then move on to the next one. Funds like Union Square or, or other funds, you know, they're, they're tech-focused, software-oriented. You know, they have a thesis around network effects or something like that. Yep. But if you look at what they actually invest in, it fits those thesis areas, but those thesis areas are necessarily broad, and I think it's effective for them. On this, at the same time, they're not investing in biotech or material science or things like that, because they know that that's well outside their range. So, you know, there's some Goldilocks amount of, uh, of focus um, that I think is appropriate. And I think that uh, our, our approach, for better or worse, is that 
once you narrow us down in terms of being seed only software and internet and predominantly East Coast, that universe feels like the right scale of a universe for us to be able to to compete pretty effectively without needing to you know explicitly be singularly focused further. So earlier we talked about how fund managers at a venture firm may specialize in a sector, or maybe they specialize in a stage. So there's a fund manager who just does seed investments, or we discussed opportunity funds and growth funds. Can you talk about how typical venture firms structure their broader portfolio of venture funds? Yeah. So typically a a venture capital firm has a set of limited partners. So these are the the investors within our fund, within our firm. And, you know, we raise specific funds to employ a strategy. The simplest example is a venture capital firm, let's say a couple partners, they do early stage investing, they raise a fund in 2011, they start investing that for a few years, then they're going to, they say, hey, you know, we're going to keep doing this one more, another time. So they raise another fund in 2014, and then they keep going, right? And each fund that's raised may have different investors, but for usually a large portion of the investor base of those different funds are the same over time. The next question then is, okay, that's fund one, fund two, fund three, fund four of a, of a certain firm. What if there are other sort of types of funds that emerge, right? So in some cases, you have firms that create growth funds or opportunity funds, and I think in each case, these are start to get a little bit different. But I think for the most part, those funds are made up of the same LPs as the, the core funds who've bought into the concept that, yeah, you know, we'd love more exposure to the companies in this portfolio. We trust these managers. And so you know, we'll, we'll allocate more dollars to this slightly different strategy for this team or maybe for this team plus one other new team member. Uh, and they go from there. So in that case, I would expect that most of the LP capital is still pretty similar, like it's, it's from the same groups of people, but maybe not 100%. Then you have situations where there are sub-funds that have different strategies or different focus areas. So everything from Kleiner Perkins that announced a few years ago, it was a number of years ago, there was a big data fund or an iPhone fund, to firms that start to create international funds that share the name but is a different investing team. Those relationships economically and sort of in terms of the LP um, commitments, those vary across the board. In some cases, I would imagine that it's actually not a separate fund. It's basically an initiative within an existing fund that's been earmarked for a certain type of investing. In some cases, it's a completely separate team where you know the mothership essentially lends their name and their LP relationships and some of their oversight to a different team employing a different strategy. And it's essentially a a separate fund with some shared economics. But I can't really speak to the specifics because it's not something I'm that familiar with. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. 
Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. You know, I'm curious about some of these later stage opportunity funds. As the nature of startups in the private market has evolved, and now we've got these massive companies like an Airbnb that are very late stage, mm-hmm. um, are is there sort of a a new era of very large late stage opportunity funds that some of these venture firms are raising so that they can maintain their pro rata in what are much larger private companies that are staying private longer? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think there's sort of two flavors of opportunity funds. Well, I'd say there's three flavors of these funds. So one is an opportunity fund where the investor invests only in the companies they've already invested in with a prior fund, but this is follow-on opportunities. So that's one model. I believe Foundry Group takes that strategy. Then there's another type of opportunity fund that says, we might do some of that, but we'll also invest in completely new companies, right? Where a firm is a series A and B investor typically, and they say, you know what? There were a couple of companies that we missed. We could have invested at the series D, but the economics didn't make sense for our main fund. So we're going to raise another fund to be able to go after those types of opportunities, um, which I think is actually quite different than the first instance. I believe Union Square's Opportunity Fund is more like this. I believe Spark's Opportunity Fund is more of that uh, profile. And then I think the third is, I think is what you, one of the things you alluded to, are funds or firms that are entirely focused strictly on later stage investing, right? Like that's, that's all they do. It, it's not that they do early stage investing and they have pro rata rights that they want to capitalize on. It's just funds that say, you know what, I think that with private companies staying private longer, the public markets are not well equipped to deal, uh, nor, nor are founders interested in going public too early. There's this opportunity for companies that have significant scale, but aren't ready to be uh, public companies, but are also probably too large to ever be acquired at uh, an attractive valuation. So there should be a capital source for those types of uh, situations. And, you know, I think Tiger Global does a number of these types of deals. A lot of the hedge funds, sometimes the mutual fund companies and so forth are coming downstream to, to make these kinds of investments. And uh, I presume that there are some uh, dedicated funds that specifically go after that opportunity as well. Rob, do you think that portfolio strategies in venture capital have evolved and changed in the past decade? And if so, how do you think they have? That's a good question. I don't think I've as much uh, experience over the longer arc of time as as some of uh, my other compatriots in the industry. But my two cents is that it probably has, especially on the software side of things. You know, I think uh, if you look at the data, the bifurcation in the scale of the exits has become greater. And so the big exits are bigger and they're, they're more plentiful, but there's just more plentiful companies overall, right? And so as a result, I think what you're seeing is that there is a little bit more of, um, I think investors are seeing more of a benefit to expanding the size of their portfolio. So you actually see, 
you, you rarely see comp- uh, funds that have, say, like 25 companies, 20 companies in their portfolios. Instead, it's more and more common to see funds that have pretty large portfolios because they realize that even though you're diluting the impact of any one winner, the size of the real big outliers um, are so extraordinary that it's worth stretching to make room for those and, and have more shots on goal, so to speak. So I think that's a broad trend. I think the, the jury's out, actually, of whether that's going to prove to be a, a better strategy or not. And, and I don't think anyone's ever done much of an analysis on portfolio sizes uh, of funds over time. So it'd be really interesting to, to do that analysis and see how that correlates with uh, performance, if at all. Yeah, I'll have to do some searching to see if I can find any studies on that. Yeah, yeah. I've just noticed myself in discussing with angel investors and doing interviews that a lot of these angel investment portfolios that have existed for decades have sort of an average time to exit from investment to getting your money out of somewhere from like nine to 11 years, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then you read Eileen Lee's article and... Uh, the average time to exit from founding to exit was seven years. So that's not even a date from when it was venture back to exit. So mm-hmm. certainly that was in the software. The The companies in that study are in the software spectrum. But I have to think that a quicker time to exit does impact portfolio strategy, not only in that IRRs and returns are going to be higher, but if you're getting that money out, you have the ability to make more bets or your LPs can reinvest faster. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that's specific to seed funds is because we're investing relatively early, there's a cohort of companies that build value, but it's not necessarily a great risk-adjusted situation to try to build like a huge, huge company. And so, you know, you see exits in the 20 to $75 million range to $100 million range for companies that are relatively young, have relatively modest business metrics, but might have really interesting scale in other dimensions or strategic value. And those are situations that could be 10x return for the seed investors and build really nice foundational returns relatively quickly. And so that certainly happens. But for the most part, the big value drivers are built over time, right? You'll always have exceptions, right? Like the Oculuses of the world or the Instagrams. But by and large, the you know, multi-hundred million dollar, multi-billion dollar companies are built into real businesses that, uh, that, and that just takes time to, to develop, right? So companies like Wayfair, HubSpot, you know, two companies in Boston that just went public and are, and are really solid, strong businesses. Dropbox will be that, uh, Airbnb. Those are companies where if they had sold out early, they would have been leaving a lot of uh, value on the table because there was truly a big, independent, promising company to be built there. And so I think we're all ultimately beneficiaries of the fact that they, uh, they decided to build rather than try to flip or get a great IRR sooner. So I'm curious, uh, with your peers in the venture community, have you come across any unique or non-traditional approaches to portfolio strategy? That's a, that's a good question. So I think in the seed side, there is definitely, you know, there's a cohort of investors who invest very, very broadly. So they invest in a very large number of companies. And their thesis is that even though you're essentially building an index of opportunities, their slice of the index will outperform uh, long term for a bunch of different reasons. So there are firms like Lira Ventures in New York, for example, or Dave McClure 
who take the strategy. And it'll be interesting to see how those play out. And both investors have, are involved in some really, really terrific companies uh, through that approach. And there's another company, a fund called um, Thrive in New York, which I also uh, appreciate in that their strategy is to be completely opportunistic, right? So they really don't have a uh, specific focus around late stage early or early stage geography or much of, much of a sector focus or a return focus. You know, their whole sense is that, you know, they're buying great assets and great assets come in different flavors and they have a fund size and strategy that is able to be very, very opportunistic. So that's a completely different approach than, you know, the traditional venture mindset where there's a very tight definition around, you know, what they do. But so far, they've been doing really well as, uh, as well. So I think those are a couple examples of different approaches to portfolio building recently that I've seen. Wow. Personally, I can't imagine trying to evaluate such a range of different investment opportunities, but I guess that's why I employ the strategy that I do and they have what they do. Yeah. It's, you have to do what, uh, what's a fit for uh, you know, your own temperament and the, the way you think about the world. So can't fault people. And everyone has a shot at being successful. So uh, I try not to judge too much. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so Rob, what are you currently most focused on? <laughs> we're focused on a bunch of different areas. You know, I'd say a couple subsectors that we're excited about. One is labor marketplaces. So I think that there's really been a revolution in the way that people work and how technology has been enabling that. And so we're fascinated by that. We've made a couple investments along those lines, but I think that there'll be many opportunities to come. The other area is around the uh, connected device ecosystem. The proliferation of internet-enabled devices in a broad range of applications has been uh, pretty extraordinary in both the consumer and B2B side. And so we think that there's a lot of exciting individual devices that are applications, but we also think that there's a lot of enabling technologies and picks and shovels businesses there that could be exciting as well to, to draft on the overall trend. And then the third area is around companies that employ, you know, what I'd say sort of algorithmic decision-making, right? So historically, uh, you know, one of the nice things about uh, big data is that it allows you to process huge amounts of information in real time and augment human decisions. And we saw verticals like ad tech be completely transformed by that. So we're thinking about what are the other verticals where, where, which exhibit similar characteristics of high velocity, large scale data to drive real time decisions. And, you know, I think that we're seeing that happening in many, many areas of, of the market. So, but, so that's a different lens that we also look at. If we could cover any topic in venture investing, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak on it? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm trying to give you the <laughs> difficult ones here. <laughs> yeah, right. I think the portfolio size question is a really interesting one that we talked about earlier. So the question of how have VC funds portfolios changed over time and how is that tied to uh, to performance? I don't know if the recent data is is uh, fresh enough to or is complete enough to be able to draw um, conclusions, but I think that'd be really interesting. Although I'm not sure who would have the purview um to, uh, to draw meaningful conclusions there. But uh, I think that'd be really interesting. It would be interesting to hear from someone at, say, an IVP or, uh, or Tiger on um, late stage investing and talk through, you know, how they think about portfolio strategy and exits and the frothiness of the market at that stage and what they're doing about it. I think that'd be pretty fascinating as well. So, Rob, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Yeah, so... Um, the best way is through uh, email. Um, I'm rob at nextviewventures.com. We have a, I have a blog 
robgo.org, which I'm active on. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at robgo. Rob, thanks so much for the time today and for this insight on VC portfolio strategy. Great. Thanks very much, Nick. Appreciate it. Thank you to Rob for sharing his thoughts and time with us. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first is on the five main parameters of a VC portfolio strategy. Number one was the number of investments. Two was the percentage of ownership in each company in which an investment is made. Number three is the amount of capital and staging of capital. Number four was capacity. So how much time and mindshare does each venture professional have to contribute? And number five was exceptions. So when does one break away from their chosen approach to items one through four? The second key takeaway is sector focus. So sectors do come and go. They have a natural life cycle like anything else. And the time that a sector is venture fundable is a small percentage of that sector or industry's total life cycle. Here, Rob advises that you consider the evolution of your sector focus areas to make sure that you stay ahead of the curve instead of falling behind it. His second point here related to how broadly or narrowly the sector is defined. As one crafts his or her angel or venture portfolio strategy, the amount of deal flow that fits within the focus area must be broad enough to see enough opportunities while being narrow enough that one's expertise allows these opportunities to be sufficiently and quickly vetted. And the third final takeaway is on opportunity funds. So Rob cited that there's three types. The first is follow-on opportunities from previous fund investments, where VCs are using their pro rata to maintain their percentage or attempt to increase their ownership. The second is a category that may do some follow-ons from previous investments, but will also invest in new opportunities. These may be companies that they decided not to invest in earlier on because the economics or other factors weren't a fit for the fund, but now would be a strong fit for an opportunity fund investment. And the third category includes these large opportunity funds focused on only late-stage venture-backed private companies. And Rob did mention that some hedge funds and mutual funds that typically play in the public markets are starting to move downstream to invest here. All right, it's time for the tip of the week. And this week's tip is binary outcomes and the underappreciated exit. On this week's episode, we touched on the timing of returns and faster time to exits. We also addressed on last week's episode this notion of a binary outcome, where a win is a unicorn investment with an outsized return and everything else is a loss. I'd like to use this week's tip to discuss how so-called losses from the portfolio that experience an early exit can ultimately become enormous wins. Many will talk negatively about investments that pay back less than the capital investment, the same amount as the capital investment, or even the modest single-digit IRR returners. While it's true that these also-ran investments will not make an angel's portfolio, As exits occur and capital is returned, this provides an angel more shots on goal. Consider David S. Rose's comments from episode 3. He mentioned that 5 out of 10 angel investments will fail completely. 2 will return your money, 2 will be solid successes, and just 1 will be a significant success. So the 4 out of 10 modest returners may provide 4 or more opportunities to find startups with an outsized return. When this is considered, a portfolio of 10 investments can turn into a portfolio of 14 or more investments, 
without ever going back to the well for more capital. Mark Andreessen recently said, quote, ultimately in both startups and VC, success rate, batting average, means nothing. Slugging percentage means everything, end quote. In an industry where the winners can be very big and the number of investments made can significantly increase the likelihood of a big outcome, more at-bats can be extremely valuable. So embrace these losers because more opportunities at the plate means more chances to hit that home run. Show notes can be found at fullratchet.net. Jump on the blog and sign up for the newsletter or give me a follow. I'm at the full ratchet on Twitter. Thanks so much for spending your time with me today. And remember, over prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next week. Mm-hmm.